Chapter Six, Part Two of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Simon. How I Found Livingstone: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, including four months' residence with Dr. Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Six, Part Two, to Ugogo. The 8th of May saw us with our terribly jaded men and animals winding up the steep slope of the first line of hills, gaining the summit of which we obtained a view remarkably grand, which exhibited as in a masterpiece the broad valley of the Makata, with its swift streams like so many cords of silver, as the sunshine played on the unshadowed reaches of water, with its thousands of graceful palms adding not a little to the charm of the scene with the great wall of the Uruguru and Usapanga mountains dimly blue, but sublime in their loftiness and immensity, forming a fit background to such an extensive, far-embracing prospect. Turning our faces west, we found ourselves in a mountain world, fold rising above fold, peak behind peak, cone jostling cone, away to the north, to the west, to the south, the mountain tops rolled like so many vitrified waves, not one adust or arid spot was visible in all this scene. The diorama had no sudden changes or striking contrasts, for a universal forest of green trees clothed every peak, cone, and summit. To the men this first day's march through the mountain region of Usagara was an agreeable interlude after the successive journey over the flats and heavy undulations of the maritime region, but to the loaded and enfeebled animals it was most trying. We were minus two by the time we had arrived at our camp, but seven miles from Rehaneko, our first instalment of the debt we owed to Makata. Water, sweet and clear, was abundant in the deep hollows of the mountains, flowing sometimes over beds of solid granite, sometimes over a rich red sandstone, whose soft substance was soon penetrated by the aqueous element, and whose particles were swept away constantly to enrich the valley below. And in other ravines it dashed, and roared miniature thunder as it leaped over granite boulders and quartz rock. The ninth of May, after another such an up-and-down course, ascending hills and descending into the twilight depths of deepening valleys, we came suddenly upon the Mukondokwa, and its narrow pent-up valley crowded with rank, reedy grass, cane, and thorny bushes, and rugged tamarisk which grappled for existence with monster convolvuli, winding their coils around their trunks with such tenacity and strength that the tamarisk seemed grown but for their support. The valley was barely a quarter of a mile broad in some places, at others it widened to about a mile. The hills on either side shot up into precipitous slopes, clothed with the mimosa, acacia, and tamarisk, enclosing a river and valley whose curves and folds were as various as a serpent's. Shortly after debouching into the Mukondokwa Valley, we struck the road traversed by Captains Buxton and Speak in 1857, between Mbumi and Karatamara. The latter place should be called Mizongi, Karatamara being but the name of a chief. After following the left bank of the Mukondokwa, during which our route diverged to every point from southeast to west, north and northeast, for about an hour, we came to the fort. Beyond the fort, a short half-hour's march, we came to Kiora. At this filthy village of Kiora, which was well grounded with goat dung, 
and peopled with a wonderful number of children for a hamlet that did not number twenty families, with a hot sun pouring on the limited open space, with a fury that exceeded one hundred and twenty-eight degrees Fahrenheit, which swarmed with flies and insects of known and unknown species. I found, as I had been previously informed, the third caravan, which had started out of Bagamoyo, so well fitted and supplied. The leader, who was no other than the white man Farquhar, was sick abed with swollen legs, Bright's disease, unable to move. As he heard my voice, Farquhar staggered out of his tent, so changed from my spruce mate who started from Bagamoyo that I hardly knew him at first. His legs were ponderous, elephantine, since his leg illness was of elephantiasis, or dropsy. His face was of a deathly pallor, for he had not been out of his tent for two weeks. A breezy hill overlooking the village of Kiora was chosen by me for my camping ground, and as soon as the tents were pitched, the animals attended to, and the boma made of thorn bushes, Farquhar was carried up by four men into my tent. Upon being questioned as to the cause of his illness, he said he did not know what had caused it. He had no pain, he thought, anywhere. I asked, do you not sometimes feel pain on the right side? Yes, I think I do, but I don't know. Nor over the left nipple sometimes, a quick throbbing with the shortness of breath? Yes, I think I have. I know I breathe quick sometimes. He said his only trouble was in the legs, which were swollen to an immense size. Though he had a sound appetite, he yet felt weak in the legs. From the scant information of the disease and its peculiarities, as given by Farquhar himself, I could only make out, by studying a little medical book I had with me, that a swelling of the legs, and sometimes of the body, might result from either heart, liver, or kidney disease. But I did not know to what to ascribe the disease, unless it was to elephantiasis, a disease most common in Zanzibar. Nor did I know how to treat it in a man who could not tell me whether he felt pain in his head or in his back, in his feet or in his chest. It was therefore fortunate for me that I overtook him at Kiora, though he was about to prove a sore encumbrance to me, for he was not able to walk, and the donkey carriage, after the rough experience of the Makata Valley, was failing. I could not possibly leave him at Kiora. Death would soon overtake him there. But how long I could convey a man in such a state, through a country devoid of carriage, was a question to be resolved by circumstances. On the 11th of May, the third and fifth caravans, now united, followed up the right bank of the Mukondokwa, through fields of Holkus, the great Mukondokwa ranges rising in higher altitude as we proceeded west, and enfolding us in a narrow river valley round about. We left Munii Uzagara on our right, and soon after found hill spurs athward our road, which we were obliged to ascend and descend. A march of eight miles from the fort of Mizongi brought us to another fort of the Mukondokwa, where we bid a long adieu to Burton's Road, which led up to the Goma Pass and up the steep slopes of Rubeo. Our road left the right bank and followed the left over a country quite the reverse of the Mukondokwa Valley, enclosed between mountain ranges. Fertile soils and spontaneous vegetation, reeking with miasma and overpowering from their odour, we had exchanged for a drowsy wilderness of aloetic and cactaceous plants, where the colquell and several thorn-bushes grew paramount. Instead of the tree-clad heights, slopes, and valleys, instead of cultivated fields, we saw now the confines of uninhabited wilderness. The hilltops were bared of their bosky crowns, and revealed their rocky natures bleached white by rain and sun. Guru Peak, 
the loftiest of the Uzagara cones, stood right shoulderwards of us as we ascended the long slope of dun-grey soil which rose beyond the brown Mukundokwa on the left. At the distance of two miles from the last fort we found a neat cumbi, situated close to the river, where it first broke into a furious rapid. The next morning the caravan was preparing for the march when I was informed that the Banamdogo, little master, Shaw, had not yet arrived with the cart and the men in charge of it. Late the previous night I had dispatched one donkey for Shaw, who had said he was too ill to walk, and another for the load that was on the cart, and had retired satisfied that they would soon arrive. My conclusion, when I learned in the morning that the people had not yet come in, was that Shaw was not aware that for five days we should have to march through a wilderness totally uninhabited. I therefore dispatched Chaupera, a Mugana soldier, with the following note to him. You will, upon receipt of this order, pitch the cart into the nearest ravine, gully or river, as well as all the extra pack-saddles, and come at once, for God's sake, for we must not starve here. One, two, three, and four hours were passed by me in the utmost impatience, waiting, but in vain, for sure. Having a long march before us, I could wait no longer, but went to meet his party myself. About a quarter of a mile from the fort I met the van of the laggards, stout burly Chaupera, and, O oh, cart-makers, listen! He carried the cart on his head, wheels, shafts, body, axle, and all complete. He, having found that carrying it, was much easier than drawing it. The sight was such a damper to my regard for it as an experiment that the cart was wheeled into the depths of the tall reeds and there left. The central figure was Shaw himself, riding at a gate which seemed to leave it doubtful on my mind whether he or his animal felt most sleepy. Upon expostulating with him for keeping the caravan so long waiting when there was a march on hand, in a most peculiar voice, which he always assumed when disposed to be ugly-tempered, he said he had done the best he could. But as I had seen the solemn pace at which he rode, I felt dubious about his best endeavours, and, of course, there was a little scene. But the young European Mtongi of an East African expedition must needs sup with the fellows he has chosen. We arrived at Madeta at 4 p.m., minus two donkeys, which had stretched their weary limbs in death. We had crossed the Mukondokwa about 3 p.m., and after taking its bearings and course, I made sure that its rise took place near a group of mountains about 40 miles north by west of Guru Peak. Our road led west-northwest, and at this place finally diverged from the river. On the 14th, after a march of seven miles over hills whose sandstone and granite formation cropped visibly here and there above the surface, whose stony and dry aspect seemed reflected in every bush and plant, and having gained an altitude of about eight hundred feet above the flow of the Mukondokwa, we sighted the lake of Ugombo, a grey sheet of water lying directly at the foot of the hill, from whose summit we gazed at the scene. The view was neither beautiful nor pretty, but what I should call refreshing. It afforded a pleasant relief to the eyes fatigued from dwelling on the bleak country around. Besides, the immediate neighbourhood of the lake was too tame to call forth any enthusiasm. There were no grandly swelling mountains, no smiling landscapes, nothing but a dun-brown peak, about one thousand feet high above the surface of the lake at its western extremity, from which the lake derived its name, Ugombo. Nothing but a low, dun-brown irregular range, running parallel with its northern shore at the distance of a mile, Nothing but a low plain stretching from its western shore far away towards the Mbwapwa Mountains and Marenga Mkali, then apparent to us from our coin of vantage, 
from which extensive scene of dun brownness we were glad to rest our eyes on the quiet grey water beneath. Descending from the summit of the range, which bounded the lake east for about four hundred feet, we travelled along the northern shore. The time occupied on the journey from the eastern to the western extremity was exactly one hour and thirty minutes. As this site represents its greatest length, I conclude that the mile is three miles long by two miles greatest breadth. The immediate shores of the lake, on all sides, for at least fifty feet from the water's edge, is one impassable morass, nourishing rank reeds and rushes, where the hippopotamus' ponderous form has crushed into watery trails the soft composition of the morass as he passes from the lake on his nocturnal excursions. The lesser animals, such as the mbogo, buffalo, the punatera, zebra, the twiga, giraffe, the boar, the kudu, the hirax, or coney, and the antelope, come here also to quench their thirst by night. The surface of the lake swarms with an astonishing variety of waterfowl, such as black swan, duck, ibisacra cranes, pelicans, and soaring above on the lookout for their prey are fish eagles and hawks, while the neighbourhood is resonant with the loud chirps of the guinea-fowls calling for their young, with the harsh cry of the toucan, the cooing of the pigeon, and the tweet to woo of the owl. From the long grass in its vicinity also issue the grating and loud cry of the florican, woodcock, and grouse. Being obliged to hold here two days, owing to the desertion of the Hindi cooper, Jaco, with one of my best carbines, I improved the opportunity of exploring the northern and southern shores of the lake. At the rocky foot of a low, humpy hill on the northern side, about fifteen feet above the present surface of the water, I detected in most distinct and definite lines the agency of waves. From its base could be traced clear to the edge of the dank morass tiny lines of the comminuted shell, as plainly marked as the small particles which lie in rows on a beach after a receding tide. There is no doubt that the wave-marks on the sandstone might have been traced much higher by one skilled in geology. It was only its elementary character that was visible to me. Nor do I entertain the least doubt, after a two days' exploration of the neighbourhood, especially of the low plain at the western end, that this lake of Ogombo is but the tail of what was once a large body of water, equal in extent to the Tanganyika. And, after ascending half-way up Ogombo Peak, this opinion was confirmed when I saw the long depressed line of plain at its base stretching towards the Mbwapa mountains thirty miles off, and thence round to Marengam Kali, and covering all that extensive surface of forty miles in breadth and at unknown length. A depth of twelve feet more, I thought, as I gazed upon it, would give the lake a length of thirty miles, and a breadth of ten. A depth of thirty feet would increase its length over a hundred miles, and give it a breadth of fifty, for such was the level nature of the plain that stretched west of Gombo and north of Marenga Makali. Besides, the water of the lake partook slightly of the bitter nature of the Matamombo Creek, distant fifteen miles, and in a still lesser degree of that of Marenga Makali, forty miles off. Towards the end of the first day of our hold, the Hindi cooper Jaco arrived in camp, alleging as an excuse that feeling fatigued he had fallen asleep in some bushes a few feet from the roadside. Having been the cause of our detention in the hungry wilderness of Agombo, I was not in a frame of mind to forgive him, so, to prevent any future truant tricks on his part, I was under the necessity of including him with the chain gangs of runaways. Two more of our donkeys died, 
and to prevent any of the valuable baggage being left behind, I was obliged to send Farquhar off on my own riding ass to the village of Mpwapwa, thirty miles off, under the charge of Mabruku Burton. To save the expedition from ruin, I was reluctantly compelled to come to the conclusion that it were better for me, for him and concerned, that he be left with some kind of chief of a village, with a six-month's supply of cloth and beads, until he got well, and that he make his own recovery impossible. The 16th of May saw us journeying over the plain which lies between Ugombo and Poapa, skirting close, at intervals, a low range of trap-rock, out of which had become displaced by some violent agency several immense boulders. On its slopes grew the Colquell to a size which I had not seen in Abyssinia. In the plain grew Baobab, an immense tamarind, and a variety of thorn. Within five hours from Ugombo the mountain ridge deflected towards the north-east, while we continued on a north-westerly course, heading for the lofty mountain line of the Mfapa. To our left towered to the blue clouds the gigantic Rubeo. The adoption of this new road to Unyanyembe, by which we were travelling, was now explained. We were enabled to avoid the passes and stiff steeps of Rubeo, and had nothing worse to encounter than a broad, smooth plain which sloped gently to Ugogo. After a march of fifteen miles, we camped at a dry mtoni called Matamombo, celebrated for its pools of bitter water of the colour of ochre. Monkeys and rhinoceroses, besides kudus, steinboks, and antelopes, were numerous in the vicinity. At this camp my little dog Omar died of inflammation of the bowels, almost on the threshold of the country, Ugogo, where his faithful watchfulness would have been invaluable to me. The next day's march was also fifteen miles in length, through one interminable jungle of thorn-bushes. Within two miles of the camp, the road led up a small river-bed, broad as an avenue, clear to the Kambi of Mpwapwa, which was situated close to a number of streams of the purest water. The following morning found us much fatigued after the long marches from Ugombo, and generally disposed to take advantage of the precious luxuries Mpwapwa offered to caravans fresh from the fly-plague lands of the Wasagua and Wado. Shaikh Tani, clever but innocently speaking old Arab, was encamped under the grateful umbrage of a huge Mtamba sycamore, and had been regaling himself with fresh milk, luscious mutton, and rich bullock humps, ever since his arrival here two days before. And, as he informed me, it did not suit his views to quit such a happy abundance so soon for the saline nitrous water of Marengamkali, with its several terquesas and manifold disagreeables. No, he said to me, emphatically, better stop here two or three days, give your tired animals some rest, Collect all the bagazis you can, fill your inside with fresh milk, sweet potatoes, beef, mutton, ghee, honey, beans, matama, mareri, and nuts. Then, inshallah, we shall go together through Ugogo without stopping anywhere. As the advice tallied accurately with my own desired and keen appetite for the good things he named, he had not long to wait for my assent to his counsel. Ugogo, continued he, is rich with milk and honey rich in flour, beans, and almost every eatable thing, and, inshallah, before another week is gone we shall be in a gogo. I had heard from passing caravans so many extremely favourable reports respecting Ugogo and its productions that it appeared to me a very land of promise, and I was most anxious to refresh my jaded stomach with some of the precious esculents raised in Ugogo. But when I heard that Mbwapa also furnished some of those delicate eatables and good things, 
most of the morning hours were spent in inducing the slow-witted people to part with them, and when, finally, eggs, milk, honey, mutton, ghee, ground matama and beans had been collected in sufficient quantities to produce a respectable meal, my keenest attention and best culinary talents were occupied for a couple of hours in converting this crude supply into a breakfast which could be accepted by and befit a stomach at once fastidious and famished, such as mine was. The subsequent healthy digestion of it proved my endeavours to have been eminently successful. At the termination of this eventful day, the following remark was jotted down in my diary. Thank God! After fifty-seven days of living upon matama porridge and tough goat, I have enjoyed with unctuous satisfaction a real breakfast and dinner. It was in one of the many small villages which are situated upon the slopes of the Mpwapwa that a refuge and a home for Farquhar was found until he should be enabled by restored health to start to join us at Unyanyembe. Food was plentiful and of sufficient variety to suit the most fastidious. Cheap also, much cheaper than we had experienced for many a day. Lukola, the chief of the village, with whom arrangements for Farquhar's protection and comfort were made, was a little old man of mild eye and a very pleasing face, and on being informed that it was intended to leave the Musungu entirely under his charge, suggested that some man should be left to wait on him and interpret his wishes to his people. As Jacob was the only one who could speak English, except Bombay and Selim, Jacob was appointed, and the chief Lukola was satisfied. Six months' provisions of white beads, Marikani and Kaniki cloth, together with two doti of handsome cloth to serve as a present to Lukola after his recovery, were taken to Farquhar by Bombay, together with a star's carabine, three hundred rounds of cartridge, a set of cooking pots, and three pounds of tea. Abdullah bin Nasib, who was found encamped here with five hundred pagazis and a train of Arab and Wasawahili satellites who revolved around his importance, treated me in somewhat the same manner that Hamid bin Suleiman treated Speak at Kasenge. Followed by his satellites, he came, a tall, nervous-looking man of fifty or thereabouts, to see me in my camp, and asked me if I wished to purchase donkeys. As all my animals were either sick or moribund, I replied very readily in the affirmative, upon which he graciously said he would sell me as many as I wanted, and for payment I could give him a draft on Sanzibar. I thought him a very considerate and kind person, fully justifying the encomiums lavished on him in Burton's Lake Regions of Central Africa, and accordingly I treated him with the consideration due to so great and good a man. The morrow came, and with it went Abdullah bin Nasib, or Kisesa, as he is called by the Wanyamwezi, with all his pagazis, his train of followers, and each and every one of his donkeys, towards Bagamoyo, without so much as giving a quahiri or good-bye. At this place there are generally to be found from ten to thirty pagazis awaiting up-caravans. I was fortunate enough to secure twelve good people, who, upon my arrival at Unyanyembe, without an exception, voluntarily engaged themselves as carriers to Ujiji. With the formidable marches of Marangamgali in front, I felt thankful for this happy windfall, which resolved the difficulties I had been anticipating, for I had but ten donkeys left, and four of these were so enfeebled that they were worthless as baggage animals. Vapa, so-called by the Arabs who have managed to corrupt almost every native word, is called Bamba by the Vasagara. It is a mountain range rising over six thousand feet above the sea, bounding on the north the extensive plain which commences at Gombo Lake, and on the east that part of the plain which is called Marengamkali, which stretches away beyond the borders of Uhumba. Opposite Mwapa, 
At the distance of thirty miles or so rises the Anak peak of Rubeo, with several other ambitious and tall brethren cresting long lines of rectilinear scarps, which ascend from the plain of Ogombo and Maringabkali as regularly as if they had been chiselled out by the hands of generations of masons and stone-cutters. Upon looking at Vapa's greenly-tinted slopes, dark with many a densely-foliaged tree, its many rills following sweet and clear, nourishing besides thick patches of gum and thorn-bush, giant sycamore and parachute-topped mimosa, and permitting my imagination to picture sweet views behind the tall cones above, I was tempted to brave the fatigue of an ascent to the summit. Nor was my love for the picturesque disappointed. One sweep of the eyes embraced hundreds of square miles of plain and mountain, from Ogombo Peak away to distant Ogogo, and from Rubeo and Ogogo to the dim and purple pasture lands of the wild, untamable Wahumba. The plain of Ogombo and its neighbour of Marengamkali, apparently level as a sea, was dotted here and there with hillocks dropped in nature's careless haste, which appeared like islands amid the dun and green expanse. Where the jungle was dense the colour was green, alternating with dark brown. Where the plain appeared denuded of bush and brake it had a whitey-brown appearance, on which the passing clouds now and again cast their deep shadows. Altogether this side of the picture was not inviting. It exhibited too plainly the true wilderness in its sternest aspect but perhaps the knowledge that in the bosom of the vast plain before me there was not one drop of water but was bitter as nitre, and undrinkable as urine, prejudiced me against it. The hunter might consider it a paradise, for in its depths were all kinds of game to attract his keenest instincts, but to the mere traveller it had a stern outlook. Nearer, however, to the base of the Mvapa, the aspect of the plain altered. At first the jungle thinned, openings in the wood appeared, then wide and naked clearings, then extensive fields of the hardy holcus, Indian corn, and mariri of Bartri, with here and there a square tembe or village. Still nearer ran thin lines of fresh young grass, great trees surrounded a patch of alluvial meadow. A broad river-bed, containing several rivulets of water, ran through the thirsty fields, conveying the vivifying element which in this part of Uzagara was so scarce and precious. Down to the river-bed sloped Mvapa, roughened in some places by great boulders of basalt, or by rock-masses, which had parted from a precipitous scarp, where clung the coal-qual with a sure hold, drawing nourishment where every other green thing failed, clad in others by the hardy mimosa, which rose like a sloping bank of green verdure almost to the summit. And, happy sight to me so long a stranger to it, there were hundreds of cattle grazing, imparting a pleasing animation to the solitude of the deep folds of the mountain-range. But the fairest view was obtained by looking northward towards the dense group of mountains which buttressed the front range, facing towards Rubeho. It was the home of the winds, which starting here and sweeping down the precipitous slopes and solitary peaks on the western side, and gathering strength as they rushed through the prairie-like Marengamkali, howled through Ogogo and Unyamwezi with the force of a storm. It was also the home of the dews, where sprang the clear springs which cheered by their music the bosky dells below, and enriched the populous district of Mpwapa. One felt better, stronger, on this breezy height, drinking in the pure air and feasting the eyes on such a varied landscape as it presented, on spreading plateaus green as lawns, on smooth rounded tops, on mountain vales containing recesses which might charm a hermit's soul on deep and awful ravines where reigned a twilight gloom, 
on fractured and riven precipices, on huge fantastically worn boulders which overtopped them, on picturesque tracts which embraced all that was wild and all that was poetical in nature. Poipois, though the traveller from the coast will feel grateful for the milk it furnished after being so long deprived of it, will be kept in mind as a most remarkable place for earwigs. In my tent they might be counted by thousands. In my slunkot they were by hundreds. On my clothes they were by fifties. On my neck and head they were by scores. The several plagues of locusts, fleas, and lice sink into utter insignificance compared with this fearful one of earwigs. It is true they did not bite, and they did not irritate the cuticle, but what their presence and numbers suggested was something so horrible that it drove one nearly insane to think of it. Who will come to East Africa without reading the experiences of Burton speak? Who is he that, having read them, will not remember with horror the dreadful account given by Speak of his encounters with these pests? My intense nervous watchfulness alone, I believe, saved me from a like calamity. Second to the earwigs in importance and in numbers were the white ants, whose powers of destructiveness were simply awful. Mats, cloths, portmanteaus, clothes, in short, every article I possessed seemed on the verge of destruction, and, as I witnessed their ferocity, I felt anxious lest my tent should be devoured while I slept. This was the first combi since leaving the coast, where their presence became a matter of anxiety. At all other camping-places hitherto the red and black ants had usurped our attention. But at Mpwapa the red species were not seen, while the black were also very scarce. After a three days' hold at Mpwapa I decided of a march to Maringa Mukali, which should be uninterrupted, until we reached Mfumi in Ugogo, where I should be inducted into the art of paying tribute to the Wagogo chiefs. The first march to Kisokwe was purposely made short, being barely four miles, in order to enable Sheikh Tani, Sheikh Hamed, and five or six Wazawahili caravans to come up with me at Chunyo, on the confines of Marenga Makali. End of chapter 6, part 2